0: issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and to mark 20 years since The Sopranos'
1: first episode aired, I'm going to be watching the whole series again for the eighth time. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I, it seems, am now taking in parcels for my entire street. And I'm Jen Offord and Jenny Colgan's dog keeps making me cry.
0: Later on, I chat with our music guru, Liz Buckley, about punk priestess and living legend, Patty Smith, ahead of her gig at London's
1: Roundhouse on the 25th of January. Writer Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch talks armchair critics and the difference between not liking something and screaming, you're rubbish, into a writer's face.
2: There is absolutely no difference. <laughs> Charlotte Runsey tells me about her book, Salt on the Tongue, and the mysterious relationship between women in the sea. And I'm talking all things Australian Open in Jenny Off the Blocks. And I do Disney's Zootopia.
0: But first, bungling asshats, monkey overlords, and uh, R. Kelly. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q. Sting. Bush
1: Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're all free to
2: host the Oscars.
1: Just saying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
2: More than a 100 MPs called on the Metropolitan Police to improve security outside Parliament last week after Conservative and pro-Remain MP Anna Soubry was harassed trying to enter the Palace of Westminster. Soubry and her staff were surrounded by a group of men apparently confused by the difference between the pursuit of democracy and a balmy afternoon in Marseille ahead of a European football tournament you'd have thought the absence of garden furniture to throw for a boulangerie window would have given the game away. Absolutely lovely pronunciation of boulangerie, my Jen. <laughs> boulangerie. boulangerie. I'm from Essex, I can't help it. Subri who's been vocal about her opposition of Brexit, was sort of ironically called a Nazi, among other sweet nothings by the group of men, one of whom was shrouded in, again, I'll say ironically, as Scotland raises its hands to the sky and shouts, not in my name, a Union Jack. One man, James Goddard, was arrested, which led to protests from his fellow pro-Brexit high-vis vest wearers. Goddard was later released on bail, and that's all I have the stomach to say about him. It was later announced that security outside Parliament would be increased in response to the request by MPs. And there's probably a joke here about police resources, except, well, it's not very funny, is it? You know what is funny, though? The Yellow
0: Vest's bungled flyer, which lists everything the movement stands uh, for. D-
1: did you see yeah, it? Yeah, I did. <laughs> They should have spell-checked someone, it. Or, oh, what, proved it. Or proved just got, it, that's the word. Just
0: got someone other than Ian to read it, <laughs> right? I mean, it starts off all right, if a bit odd, with demands for justice for our boys and Brexit. But then, well, um, child abuse, veteran suicide and the rape and murder of our children are all on their what-they-stand-for <laughs> list
1: <laughs> because the daft Ship biscuits have got for and against confused. We've all done it. Soubry was not the only Remainer to fill the wrath of that bunch of cunts. Our future, our choices, Femi, was also harangued by protesters? All right. Unable or unwilling to differentiate him from the MP, David Lammy. (laughs) But hang on, aren't they merely exercising their democratic right to free speech on Brexit? Well... Also subject to a barrage of offensive bullshit was Guardian columnist and leader of the Jeremy Corbyn (laughs) fan club Owen Jones, whose hope for the next few months seem entirely based on getting his idol into number 10, be that after a no deal or after a no Brexit. So is this really about us leaving the EU at all? Or is it about WASOX taking the opportunity to abuse a woman, a man of colour and a gay man in the name of democracy? And we're worried about what will happen if there's a second referendum. Dream on, people. It's already here. Yeah,
0: uh, seemingly not noticing that stuff is already kicking off, the Daily Telegraph is mighty worried about what could kick off if Brexit doesn't happen. If MPs revoke Article 50, we could well see Leave voters engage in symbolic, creative acts of civil disobedience, op-ed as Cheryl Jacobs warned, presumably while unsuccessfully trying to untangle her knickers from a dreadful twist. Jacob goes on to detail what Middle England might be forced to do, and uh, just a warning to any listeners of a delicate constitution, you may find the following imagery disturbing. There will be more like the businessman who will cancel his TV licence. Fuck off. Mm -hmm. Some might insist on paying their council tax late, or stop their direct debit and demand to pay it in person, in pennies, at the council offices. Others could choose to ignore motoring fines, or park their cars wherever they want. A few months ago, a barge owner even told me he would leave all the locks open on the canal he uses if Brexit <laughs> is stopped.
1: <laughs> but you know what the most offensive thing about all of this, talking about barge owners, in fact, is everybody seems to have forgotten that an MP was murdered in the street yeah. in this country yeah. already. What? Do they, how much worth do they think it's going to get?
0: But that doesn't fit their narrative. Remembering Joe Cox doesn't fit their narrative. No. But what about the people who are
1: going to stop paying their TV license, Hannah? Oh, dear. I think I can take it. So, you know what I was saying last week about our new monkey overlords? Are they here? All hail our new monkey overlords. Please rise up soon. Yep. Well, we might not have to wait that long because it turns out scientists in Canada have detected mysterious repeating energy bursts from deep space, with some experts suggesting they could be evidence of advanced alien life. Yes. Don't pretend you didn't just punch <laughs> the air with glee. Though other scientists have been keen to use things like logic and sense to explain what these beeps are all about, I'm choosing to believe those that say it's a race of beings with the timing of George Garling. <laughs> The sounds, which were heard once before in 2007, were discussed by Drs. Loeb and Lingham of Harvard last year. According to The Guardian, they suggested that the noise could be leakage from planet-sized alien transmitters. Mm. These apparently aren't designed for communication, but instead to propel giant spaceships powered by light sails, which bounce light off a huge reflective sheet to provide thrust. I mean, those spaceships could say £350 million (laughs) for the Klingon NHS on the side, and I would still choose to believe it right now. If you're listening in, alien life forms, please, if you can't make it any better, at least
2: take some of these twats with you. Or even if you don't take them, just give them a good probe. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And in the world of entertainment, the question on everybody's lips last week was, has the time finally come for Robert R. Kelly to bump and grind with the long arm of the law? So unpleasant. (laughs) (laughs) I I just couldn't think of of another song to use in there because all of them are too overtly sexual if that wasn't overtly sexual enough. The R&B legend, who has faced accusations of sexual abuse for over 20 years and recently found himself the subject of a campaign to be removed from music streaming services, was in more hot water last week following the airing of documentary series Surviving R. Kelly, in which it was alleged he had preyed on teenage girls. The somewhat damning evidence presented against him, including by his own family members, led to a number of stars who'd worked with Kelly to apologise for doing so, including Lady Gaga for their 2013 collaboration, Do What You Want. And to be fair, she should be apologising for it on multiple levels, but anyway... (laughs) Though, of course, the early exit of Noel Edmonds from last year's I'm a Celebrity proves that the public can't always be trusted to make the big decisions. The song subsequently saw a 13,720% rise in sales in the US. Thankfully, the boost is to be short-lived as the song was subsequently removed from streaming services at Gaga's behest.
0: Okay, let's talk about suspended sentences and domestic violence offences and how the two need to stop going together. John Cowell dished out some horrific beatings to his soon-to-be ex-wife, Lindsay. There are photos and the brutality is sickening. Lindsay says as well as punching her repeatedly, he stamped on her stomach after a hysterectomy operation, beat her with a baseball bat, controlled her movements, rubbed a dirty nappy in her face and has left her suffering cartilage damage to her knee, nightmares and flashbacks. Cowell pled guilty to actual bodily harm and breaching a non-molestation order. And Judge Simon Medland QC gave Cowell a 15-month sentence suspended for 18 months, stating that Cowell's pre-sentence report had indicated that it was, quote, not part of an ongoing pattern of behaviour of this nature, <laughs> and that Cowell did not hold seriously negative views of women in general.
1: Oh, sorry. now carry on. No,
0: exactly. I mean, first of all, please allow me and Hannah and Jen, uh, for fuck's sake... Secondly, had Cowell inflicted these injuries on a stranger in the street, he'd almost certainly be behind bars now. The criminal justice system needs to start taking domestic violence seriously, because this is laughable. Lindsay Cowell said, I have been let down by the justice system. I'm absolutely gutted he has fooled his way free, leaving me broken-hearted with four children to care for. I believe my story is important to get the message out there. This is not acceptable behaviour and it was totally unprovoked. And we absolutely stand by Lindsay Cowell. For anyone who needs it, the Domestic Violence Helpline is 0808 200 0247.
2: Does anyone fancy some good news? Oh, please. Are the aliens here? (laughs) Sadly not. And uh, unbelievably, it's over to the US where Donald Trump is doing the honours in a roundabout way. Well, I mean, OK, it's not actually DJT who tried to bring in some new rules that would prevent employers from providing free birth control to staff via their insurance policies. And these were set to come into force on Monday. I think that's today. today. Trump's administration was attempting to widen the pool of employers which could opt out of providing contraceptives at no extra cost, from just those with sincerely held religious objections to, according to NBC News, non-profit groups, for-profit companies, non-governmental employees... Schools and universities, so that's pretty much everyone, isn't it? We've covered all the bases there.
1: Yeah, because I don't think you provide your like cleaner or your babysitter
2: with free healthcare. So yeah, that's pretty much everything. Yeah, but also like what's not for profit. For profit, what, yeah. what the fuck? Anyways, 13 states sought an injunction to put the new rules on hold until a full lawsuit could be brought. And US District Judge Haywood Gilliam, great name, great guy, said fair play, arguing that he had serious questions as to whether or not the new rule would contravene former President Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act. Unfortunately, that won't prevent these rules coming into force in all the other states, not including those 13. So. Still, that's some good news. And more news next week.
1: Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they?
0: Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we don't even have time to mention that some branches of Poundland are selling novelty marshmallows in the shapes of tits and a bum in bikini pants with packaging reading Squeeze My Cheeks because we're too busy learning how to look like one of our favourite poets. Yep, Sylvia Plath is back in the news as a lost short story, Mary Ventura and the Ninth Kingdom, is published on January the 22nd. And so an ode to plus fashion sensibilities originally published in the Spanish edition of Glamour back in November 2017 has also resurfaced. The Get the Look page includes a houndstooth coat, nice. some snazzy ruffled trousers. I mean, it's a bold statement. Yeah, I'm not bold sure. Bold statement. A cushion reading Ginsberg is God. Mm-hmm. And brace yourself. A gas oven. Oh Lord! <laughs> Who in the sweet fancy fuck thought that was a good idea? I mean, don't get me wrong; it's a right nice pink smeg number.
2: <laughs> no, you love a bit of smeg. Love Mike. a bit of
0: smeg, but maybe just—I t- don't know—just a tad disrespectful to a woman whose works are regarded as some of the most defining of the 20th century, and possibly, I don't know, trivializing suicide.
2: I was going to say, I'm not sure that would necessarily meet the uh, Samaritans guidelines, but um, yeah.
0: I mean, and does it mean we're to expect a page in GQ dedicated to Kurt Cobain and featuring an expensive shotgun? I very much doubt it, because men's mags tend to big up their readers and icons rather than dragging them down the way women's mags do. Do you want to hear a bit more about those marshmallows? Yes, please. (laughs) Yeah, the response from Poundland when they mm. were accused of sexism by selling these squishy, Did they have squishy any penis? treats. No, I've, I mean, come on now, Jen. Unsavory, you can't have yeah. children squeezing penises in shops. <laughs> it's not going to go down <laughs> Tits, well. Though. Tits. Why not? about them? Right, so this was a response that a spokesperson from Poundland said to The Sun.
2: What The Sun complained about this? Yep, yeah.
0: speaking to The Sun, a spokesperson from Poundland defended the suite, saying. Here at Poundland, we think it's okay that sometimes we don't always get it right for everyone. Because frankly, it's impossible to do that. Just because someone doesn't like something we do, we also believe that doesn't give them the automatic right to stop us doing it for thousands of other people who like it. <laughs> if something's <laughs> offended you, we won't force you to buy it. It's fine for you to look the other way and ignore it.
2: Who's the, uh, I know, is it Richard Keyes <laughs> and Andy <Ryan>? Gray? <laughs> Do they own Poundland? I believe
0: they are hanging out the back
2: of Poundland. (laughs) Got plans for Valentine's Day? No, me either. Actually, that's a lie. I do. And those plans are moving to a new location as of February the 14th in London. We will be at King's Place near King's Cross. And we will be hosting the fantastic dame claire of balding and the excellent sarah pasco tickets are on sale now so you know get them quickly because they are gonna sell like baked goods that are warm get yourself over to www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue where you can find out about this and all of our other excellent shows Hello,
0: I am joined by our resident music guru, the frankly smashing Liz Buckley, who is label boss at Ace Records. Hi, Liz. Hi there. Now, what a trooper. Liz has lined up in front of her some cough pastels, some cough medicine, <laughs> and I think a vodka and Coke, because, bless her, she's nothing but rock and roll.
3: <laughs> yeah, bit, I've got a little bit, bit of a cold, but, you know, nothing will stop me talking about Patty Smith. <laughs>
0: exactly. You are here to talk about the, and I am
3: understating here, fecking glorious Patty Smith. What
0: are woman.
3: Yes, what a woman. I'm glad that you love her too. So we we went to see her last year, didn't we? We uh, did. Yes.
0: She was supporting, I'm putting that in inverted commas with my voice, <laughs> Nick Cave at All Points East. Mm. And blimey, she was a tough act to
3: follow. <laughs> yeah, she was incredible. And she's doing the roundhouse this month, actually January the 25th. So she's back on the road if people want to see her, although I imagine it's probably sold out. But yeah, she's she's an absolute force. And it was wonderful to see her. Tell me why you love her. That's a very big question. Okay, where do we start? Let me think. She doesn't like being categorised. That's partly why I'm sort of stalling here. So She doesn't really approve biographies and things like that mm-hmm. because she doesn't like the idea of things being definitive. She's not really young or old. She's not really male or female. She's not really poet or a rocker. She's sort of a bit of everything and... That's exactly what she does with her albums. She always gets put in the punk bracket, American punk rather than British punk, obviously. Very, very different things. I would say she's actually nearer to being a hippie or a beatnik than she is... A punk, really. She's much more sort of about peace and freedom. Well, and... she
0: started that gig by doing a bit of Allen Ginsberg's "Howl." Yeah, you don't really get much more beatnik than that. No,
3: her influences. I think "Poppies" is dedicated to Jim Morrison, Edie Sedgwick, and the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, she's always <laughs> she's always kind of you know taking from all over the place. I remember her saying she didn't like Andy Warhol very much, even though they were often put in the same bracket, because art should be changed changing things, not reflecting things. Yeah. I do
0: understand the punk bracket a bit, though, because she is quite anarchic. She definitely goes her own way.
3: She's very much an outsider. I think that's the thing with Patty. She sort of, you know, and that's why she goes for Ginsberg, Burroughs, Kerouac, all that kind of stuff. And she, She's definitely an outsider to society, but she also wants everyone to gather together and to be with her and it to be a sort of movement and a power... She's a pioneer and people find her very, very hard to describe because there isn't anyone like her. All of her heroes tended to be men and she resented that, actually, quite rightly so. But, like, when people talk about her, they're sort of, you know, there's Dylan or there's Lou Reed or there's William Burroughs and then they kind of go, or Polly Harvey. And you're sort of like... There isn't actually anybody of her own time, of her Mm -hmm. own gender that they can say she is like that person. That, I think, is why I'm struggling to sort of say exactly what she is because... She's just Patty Smith, you know. She's absolutely <laughs> out there on her own, really.
0: I, think um, I, I am taking that as the best answer, Liz. What is Patty Smith? She's Patty Smith, okay. <laughs> Brexit, Brexit.
3: <laughs> Patty Smith means Patty Smith, guys. <laughs> yeah. But you know, she isn't. She isn't punk, and she but she isn't hippie. She isn't beatnik. But she she but she also is all of these things. She's accessible, and she's populist. She's romantic, and she's a poet. But she's also freedom and expression. and I mean, if you take the front cover of Horses, probably one of the most brilliant photographs of a woman, I think, ever. Oh, it's wonderful. It's just fantastic. But it is so many things just in one photograph. It's hard to state how shocking it was at the time. So that album came out winter of 75. And, you know, this is a time where you have got very made-up ladies with huge hairstyles and very dressed up, very feminine. You know, it's Marilyn Monroe are your sort of icons. There aren't that many women in music at all to even refer to, but when they are, they're sort of backing singers or they're glamorous and... Mm-hmm. So, there we have Patty Smith, who has a haircut which she deliberately did on herself to look like Keith Richards. She's wearing a suit with a jacket over her shoulder because she wants to look like Frank Sinatra. And then she's got no makeup on. She's completely flat chested. She's very, very thin. And she's staring right at you. So, there's no sort of avoidance of glance, or it's very sexualized, even though it's incredibly androgynous. So, it's such a powerful photograph.
0: I think most photos of that time, and to an extent still now, are very much the male gaze. Mm. And that isn't. That's is Patty's gaze. Mm.
3: Yeah, she's staring you out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And at Easter as well, so a couple of albums later, front cover of Easter. She's braless. She's got a dress on. You can see her nipple. She's got her arm over the back of her hair and you can see her arm hair. And that was incredibly shocking at the time because this isn't just an album that you know you might choose to buy. This is an album that's racked out in shops. So whether you want to see it or not, yeah. this is, so it's quite a challenging photo to be out there. And you know it is sort of bigger than lyrics. The statement is as big as a supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that obviously goes right through to the music as well, so her pioneering is not just the iconography of what she looks like. A lot of people will know her cover of Gloria by them. She doesn't just sing what is basically a pub classic. She proceeds that with a poem, and a lot a lot of her songs will be mashups of poems and all sorts of things. Before she sings Gloria, her poem Oath starts, that Jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine. And that felt like a really bold announcement, you know, it's like a new religion, it's a real statement of intent. It's liberation, not war, I'd say, but it's opting out rather than a fight. Van Morrison's version of Gloria is basically a guy fantasising about being seduced by a woman. You've got Patti Smith singing about being seduced by a woman, that's quite something, (laughs) She kind of takes that off of him, and you know, she's still singing to a female. She doesn't change the gender. She takes something that is sort of the male gaze and she makes it not only hers, but kind of anti religion as well as anti men. It was a pretty bold statement. And
0: it's interesting that you mention religion because I agree with everything you've just said, but that her seeing her felt a bit like a religious experience.
3: She's very She's sort a of creature like, isn't yes. she? Yeah. Like a shaman. Yeah. She's amazing. There's a certain kind of delivery that she has. It's a bit Elder Stateswoman. It's a bit sort of Little Richard. She used to sing without a microphone. She'd do cupped hands or a microphone. So, a megaphone, sorry. So it would be that sort of like, you know, just. just The use of charisma rather than...
0: (laughs) Oh, she's just oozing it from every orifice.
3: Yeah, she is. And she takes that so seriously. She's very earnest, Smith. So there was a gig that she did at CBGB's that wasn't going very well back in the day. And she would literally bang her head on the amp until she started bleeding so that people would pay attention. that's how much she feels it, you know. Wow. Yeah. She's she's the real deal. There was a brilliant story. I'm trying to remember who... Where I heard it. They needed a backup guitarist because Lenny K. was may be that brilliant. He's a music journalist friend of hers that she was playing with. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they were auditioning, they used to get them to play Gloria for as long as they would. And if they gave up, they weren't right for the band. are <laughs> <So, laughs>
0: not still playing Gloria in half an hour you do not
3: in have several the job. days'
0: yeah. time. <laughs> Some of them are still playing, just hoping <laughs> that she's going to phone them back.
3: Another reason she's quite hard to describe is she has a naughty habit of saying different things in interviews, so she will talk about having a very Christian upbringing, and the influence of religion, vo- uh, her parents and stuff. But then in another interview, she'll say she was a Jehovah's Witness, and in another interview, she'll say she was an atheist. So she toys around with sort of what truth and fiction is, and she was very, very sickly child Patty Smith. She had sort of everything, basically. She had measles and mumps and scarlet fever, double pneumonia. She had an eye patch because she had a dodgy eye. All she sorts she rocks of an eye patch, though. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the, the, the otherness. You can see where this yeah. is all coming from. But... um She had hallucinations because she was always feverish and I think she enjoys or certainly plays with what is truth, what is fantasy, you know, so hallucinations and visions and stuff play a big, big role in her lyrics and her stories and her versions of truth. (laughs) Where would you suggest that
0: people dip their toe into Patty Waters if they haven't already?
3: Horses is the obvious one. I mean mm-hmm. Horses is the you know, it's still in most people's lists of the best albums of all time. So, you know, it's it's timeless, it's incredible, it's it's wonderful. Part of Patty's problem, I would say, is that people have always been waiting for her to do horses too, and she hasn't done that. Radio Ethiopia, which was her follow-up bombed actually, got terrible reviews. People just didn't like it and for stupid reasons I think. I mean it's it's not her best, but it's certainly not the worst thing in the world. And a lot of the reviews were sort of, oh, it's just a very competent rock record even though it's got like sort of like a 13-minute improvised jazz (laughs) record single on it. Uh, I think the Libertines (laughs) did that as well, yeah. But then by the same token, you'll get Rolling Stone saying it's a terrible record because it's got a (laughs) 13-minute improvised jazz record on it. Mm. Easter is a fantastic record. That that sort of uh, continues a little bit more in the same vein you might be expecting. It's got Because the nights the Bruce Springsteen song which was sort of probably her most successful single and most well-known record. It's a great it's a great track. What's beautiful about, because the night actually is, it was a very much a record company thing. She's recording near Springsteen. She's from New Jersey as well. And used to work in a factory. It's actually quite a Bruce Springsteen kind of upbringing. Yeah. He wrote this song, and he didn't really think it fitted with the E Street Band. And so the record companies were a bit, hey, give us a patty, she needs a hit kind of thing, because they've heard the album, <laughs> they're not that keen on it. <laughs> she rewrites it for Fred. She's met her soon-to-be husband, Fred Sonic Smith, who's in the MC5. And she rewrites it with lyrics for her husband to be. And I think that's kind of brilliant. It's even when they're trying to sort of go sing their song, she's like, i do it my way. And her sort of love for Fred, which had kind of almost abruptly ended her career at the end of the 70s, through choice shocks a lot of people because it's sort of like got this punk priestess poetess who's sort of like you know outside of society and all that kind of thing suddenly quits to get married move to Michigan and have children and people are like what the hell is she doing that's not what I bought into but I think for Patty romance is absolutely all she's ever wanted you know she these poets at Baudelaire and Rimbaud and all that kind of stuff, the stuff that she reads, nothing could be more romantic than having a large body of artistic work and then disappearing. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, That's yeah. what she's going for, you know. So it kind of suits her perfectly, I think. And for her, great love is the ideal. So, like, she was really obsessed with Mogigliani's mistress, who gave up her family and she committed suicide when she was nine months pregnant because he died and it's it's that sort of giving somebody absolutely wholeheartedly your being, you know, and that is what she did for Fred. I mean, her and Fred were just absolutely loves dream, two kids happy as anything. And by no means were they just sort of like, you know, doing the garden or whatever. He learned to fly. She learnt about 16th century Japanese literature. Of course she did, <laughs> because Patti Smith. Yes, Patti Smith is Patti Smith. <laughs> so, you know, I think their, their love is almost part of her career. It's who, who she is. And I by no means see her stopping as anything other than a wonderful thing. But, you know, she came back, and now we have all the sort of post-Fred records. And I think if people love horses, I would say read Just Kids, because Patty's very much about the written word as much as Mm -hmm. records. Just Kids is her first work of prose, which is 2010, so surprisingly recently. Normally she wrote poetry books, of course. And uh, it's about her friendship with Robert Mapplethorpe, who took the picture that's the front cover of Horses. And it's a lovely book about friendship and it's just about them growing up together, all their chance meetings that made them become friends and how they stuck together through thick and thin and it's the best insight you'll get into her because it's the only time she's properly you know, she can't fantasize or hallucinate quite so much in a in a autobiography about her beautiful friendship with Robert Maplethorpe.
0: Thank you so much for shining a light on such a wonderful artist.
3: Thank you for having me. Thanks, Patsy. <laughs>
4: Hi, I'm Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch. I am a comedy writer and nerd. Art. It takes five million years of heart, soul, sweat and tears to create, about two minutes to consume and three seconds for some dickhead to spoil by sidling up to you and telling you that they reckon they could have done it better because how hard can it be? This festive season, BBC One showed its now traditional post-Christmas three-part dark and sweary Agatha Christie adaptation by Sarah Phelps. Many of us have come to look forward to a bit of bleak murder mystery peppered with fabulous actors in stunning period dress pulling cigarette holders from their mouths to call one another a boring bitch. Personally, I love them. They're my post-Christmas espresso washing away the previous week's sugar overload. One size does not fit all, however, and so not everybody was going to enjoy this year's offering, featuring John Markovich's ageing and faded Poirot facing a murderous stalker, some terribly English fascists, his own wartime PTSD, and a belligerent Ron Weasley who's somehow gone from 18 to 45 in the space of seven years. And you know what, that's fine. It's fine not to like something. It's fine to say you don't like something in private or in public. And goodness knows we all have the platform here in the utopian futurescape of 2019 to say things in public. What's not fine on finding you don't care for art you've just consumed is to track down who made it. Get the details of their personal social media account and then send your negative feedback, whether it be a link to your blog post on everything wrong about X in 3,000 words and two punctuation marks or a simple tweet telling them that you hope they lose their job. Why? Because it's obnoxious, is why. If you're an accountant and you've just done some accountancy that's perfectly fine and what the client has for, should you expect to have some rando text you a week later to tell you that they've seen a copy of your spreadsheet and they hope you get sacked because they hated the font that you used? Or maybe you do. I don't know. I'm not an accountant. Maybe the world of accountancy spectatorship is riddled with arseholes. There's a reason we used to send our complaints about TV shows to Points of View, and it wasn't just to hear Terry Wogan read out our furious scribblings about Trini and Susanna's bad attitudes in his wryly avuncular tones. Points of View was an acceptable platform to publicly vent and to give negative feedback. The creators of that TV show were free to watch if they wanted, what Sir Terry never did was hop on a moped, drive it to Trinny Woodall's house, break in, and then shout Norma from Weybridge's letter at her through a bullhorn while she was trying to load the dishwasher. And that's the difference between saying you don't like something and sending your dislikes straight to the creator. It's invasive. It's upsetting for them. Obviously it is. They're only human. And if you're the sort of person who sends that kind of message, then you must know that. You'll forgive me if I assume that that's part of the thrill for you. You'll forgive me if I assume that you're kind of a bully. Sarah Phelps, being the sort of don't-give-a-fuck merchant who'll write a sneaky bit of staircase fingering into a lavish period who done whodunit, spend most of her shows run highlighting the shit she was being sent on Twitter and actually engaging with the shit-flingers, which must have made their Christmases. When pushed, you'd see the same reasoning being given out time and time again. According to them... They aren't bullies. They're either honest critics who will not be silenced or they're paying customers who want to return this bit of period drama they accidentally purchased when they paid their licence fee because it's the wrong colour or something. Well, I have got great news, guys. If you're an expiring TV critic, then there has never been more online outlets hungry for content. I mean, look at me. I'm doing an opinion on a podcast right now, for God's sake. You just don't have to tag the people you're having a pop at in your tweet. I'm certainly not going to tag a bunch of tweeters with names like at Dave1964 underscore MCFC on this because there's no need for it. And I don't need to hear their counter-opinion that I'm a fat bitch anyway who should make them a sandwich cry-laugh emoji, cry-laugh emoji, cry-laugh emoji. If you consider yourself more a disgruntled customer of the BBC, the BBC have an official complaints department. You can either call 03700100222 or visit bbc.co.uk slash complaints. It may not be as thrilling as finding the writer and shouting at them directly, I'm afraid, and I know that that's sometimes just the way bullies roll. That's why back when I worked in a shop, there was a certain type of customer who'd rather berate a cashier in public using personal insults and threats than take their shopping grievances to customer services or a manager. Some people just enjoy the petty power play of making an underpaid 20-year-old cry. And if you don't think writers are analogous with shop workers, there, as I say, I've done both and the pay is roughly the same. A further excuse for the behaviour of tagging creators into a virtual points of view letter I bore witness to was that, apparently, TV writers need some form of criticism – because we're surrounded by yes-men and sycophants who never give us negative notes and always just make whatever's in our first drafts without question or comment. Obviously, this will come as a surprise to anybody who's currently actually writing anything for TV, radio, or film, or other. If you haven't ever had the experience, think back to the last big meeting you were in when 20 executives all felt that they had to give some input and you had to somehow implement all of it, including several sets of suggestions that directly contradicted one another. Nobody has ever not got notes. And that's when our work actually gets to a part in the process where it might get made. Most writers live with more rejections than the nerd character in a nineties teen sitcom. Often the people doing the apparently vital work of heckling via Twitter just end up muted and ignored. Occasionally they end up yelling at someone like Sarah Phelps, who would rather go, Ooh, look at this rude dickhead. Sometimes, though, they end up actually hounding an unsuspecting writer or actor off social media altogether for no more than being involved in a TV show they didn't care for. Recently, the actor Will Poulter decided to pack in Twitter because of the army of armchair Barry Normans sending him shit for starring in Bandersnatch, Netflix's Choose Your Own Black Mirror episode. I personally haven't watched slash played Bandersnatch yet, so I can't say with any certainty whether there's a point six hours in where one of the options is just give up on this and swear at our actor until he deletes his account. Now oh, maybe there is. That's the sort of ooh, technology's a bit amoral in it message that Black Mirror usually likes to put out there. Maybe life in 2019 has in itself become one big Black Mirror choose your own adventure story. Maybe this is all happening in Charlie Brooker's head. What does all of this boil down to? The internet and social media have made the barrier between creator and audience waffle thin. As somebody whose first decade online was spent writing fan fiction and who only joined Twitter in the first place to watch the cast of Star Trek TNG chatting with one another, I can attest that this is often a very good thing. Social media is just another way to get us all talking and unfortunately when people talk, occasionally they act like a bellend. So just don't be a bellend. See Twitter as a big pub. Would you go up to a stranger in a pub and give them unsolicited criticism? Maybe you would, it's not against the law, but if you did, you wouldn't really have cause to complain if everybody else in the pub then referred to you as that bellend who was horrible to Susan for no good reason. Would you? Bellend! Hi,
1: Hannah here, just having a nice cup of tea and wanted to remind you that if you like what we do, you can help support us. You can do that by going to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, where you can throw some readies at us to help us keep producing the kind of thing that you seem to enjoy listening to and also keep me in tea. Thank you.
2: I'm joined on the phone by journalist and author of new book, Salt on Your Tongue, Women in the Sea, Charlotte Runcie. Hi, Charlotte. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. So your book, it's your
5: first book, is that right? Yeah, it's my first book. It's a kind of memoir, non-fiction, history book mash-up. It's not something, anything like I've, anything I've ever written before. I'm usually a journalist. I write about radio for the Daily Telegraph and poetry for a range of different places. So this is a bit of new territory for me, really.
2: Well, it's quite a poetic book. The writing is quite lyrical.
5: Yeah, I mean, I I think I definitely drew on some of the rhythms of poetry when I was writing it. It's a book about women in the scene, mythology, art, music, literature. But it's also a memoir about having my first baby and how walking by the sea and particularly reading about the sea and thinking about the sea and listening to music inspired by the sea really helped me come to terms with that huge life change that is having a first baby. So it's sort of two stories in one, really. And I came to write it because I suppose I'd always been fascinated by the sea in the way that most of us are, especially in Britain. You know, We're an island nation and there is this kind of sense of the sea in our history. Most of us learn sea shanties in school you know what to do with drunken sailor and so like that and lots of us go on holiday by the sea as well and it was really in those childhood holidays that I took to the seaside in Britain Scotland in particular where my mum's from it was the thing I looked forward to most in the year was being by the sea so
2: the book obviously is a lot about your relationships as well so to your grandmother in particular mm. who sadly passed away mm-hmm. which you touch on in in the book as well. But also about the birth of your first child. A friend of mine, Carriad Lloyd, who has a podcast called The Grief Cast, she doesn't think it's a coincidence that she started making it as she was about to give birth to her first child
5: as well. Did those two things sort of tie in a little bit? Absolutely. I think you can't escape thinking about death when you are in the process of preparing for birth. I think. It's it's a really strange. I didn't expect to think about death so much when I was pregnant, but other other mothers I've spoken to have have felt the same thing. Like you, you become aware of how difficult birth is. You, you know, it's a huge process. Nine months is a long time, and your body changes, and then birth happens, and it's difficult and painful, and it is life-threatening as well. I mean, in this country, thankfully, not so much, and the NHS is brilliant maternal mortality is very unlikely. But that's a recent phenomenon, you know. A lot of women throughout history and still in many parts of the world, for pregnancy is the most dangerous time of their life. You also, when you're confronted with the idea of bringing a new life into the world and seeing a new baby for the first time, someone at the beginning of their life, you're very aware that you probably won't see that same person at the end of their life. It's a tragedy if you do, and, and people sadly do. But you have this sense that of the beginning and the end of life, of bookending it. And I felt particularly when My grandmother died. She didn't die instantly. I wrote about this in the book. She died quite slowly over a period of hours. We were with her in the hospital with nurses, sort of helping to ease her pain in those final hours. But when I was giving birth, I realised that the midwives who were helping me and were helping my daughter to be born, they were the same kind of person. They were the same empathetic, practical, skilled sort of person bringing someone into the world as the people I'd met who are helping someone leave the world. And I felt there was a really interesting mirror image there. Yeah, I completely think that birth and death are always always one and the same in some ways. So that was a, a, a question I really wanted to explore in the book.
2: The book is predominantly about the relationship between women and the sea. So it's not necessarily the most obvious of uh, feminist issues. What is that relationship? Like? What, what did you want to explore about it? Why did that fascinate you so much?
5: Well, I suppose it was because when I was, as I said, oh, when I was reading about the sea and listening to music about it in particular, I was listening to sea shanties, most of all. And these were songs that were work songs sung by men on sailing ships, mostly, where there was a lot of really hard work to do that had to be done as a team. So to get everyone working as a team and in the same rhythm, sea shanties were really important because you had everyone kind of singing together hauling together, knowing when to pull on the right rope at the right time, then everything would get done properly. And so that's what sea shanties were for. And so I was really interested in these songs, they're very beautiful songs, a lot of them, but they're about men and men's work. And the more I listened to them and enjoyed them, the more I thought, well, where, where are the women? Women didn't really go to sea in the Age of Sail because it was so dangerous and difficult and such hard physical labour. Women often just weren't there. I mean, you read stories of, of the Great Age of Sailing Ships, they're very masculine stories, and a lot of mm-hmm the great literature of the sea, Moby Dick is the big example, but also The Old Man in the Sea, Hemingway, they are stories of man's great adventure at sea. And there was this quotation from Samuel Johnson that every man thinks mainly of himself not having been a soldier or not having been to sea. There was this consensus idea throughout history that for men, going to sea is a big adventure. And so, you know, and when I started looking for women, in all these sea stories I found I found they were everywhere but they were not quite where I expected a lot of the time they're supernatural they're selkies you know shape-shifting seal creatures they're mermaids they're sirens they're witches and I found that really interesting Like, why is it that when women are at sea they're magical in some way. What does that tell us? Some of them are hugely inspiring. You have Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of fertility and beauty, as everyone knows, but she was also the goddess of harbours and the open ocean. Mm. And she was a protector in childbirth. And I just thought that was a really interesting connection because Aphrodite was quite often seen as the kind of ideal woman, the, the essence of femininity. And she was the goddess of two major things, fertility and womanhood and the sea. I've realised that Wherever there are these women, they are, they seem to know more about the sea than men as well. Mm. They have this kind of supernatural control over it. There are lots of cliches as well that link women to the sea. Like there are things that, certainly misogynist tropes about women like changeability and danger (sighs) that also men have applied to the sea. You know, being governed mysteriously by the moon in a way that we don't quite understand. (laughs) There's all this way that men have talked about the sea as being female and in particular boats as being female. And I just wanted to explore that idea as well, because if men have thought for hundreds of years that the, the sea and women share this kind of essential mystery, then maybe it's, it's important for women to reclaim that and say, what is that mystery? Are we really mysterious? Is there a kind of spirituality here? Or is there something more practical, physical and essential about the creation of life and The salt in our bodies
2: the book is is beautifully written most of it is in scotland and you describe you know parts of scotland that you've lived in and it really made me want to go to scotland i was like "Uh, it's kind
5: (laughs) of a bit like a love letter to scotland as well i think so and i think part of that comes from having grown up in hertfordshire i sound very english but my mother is from scotland she's from fife which is where she lives now again and so i felt this again on my mother's side on the female side of my family this connection to scotland i spent all of my school holidays in Scotland as a child, and I moved to Edinburgh at the age of 18, sort of university holidays, and then I moved to Edinburgh permanently after I graduated from university. And now I live in the Scottish borders, and it's always felt much more like home to me than England, even though I sound like I'm not from here. And I think it's always given me that sense of being an outsider, and not really belonging to either England or Scotland, and feeling like searching for a kind of sense of identity that every writer is i suppose charlotte your book was published
2: on the 3rd of january and i assume is available from all good bookshops and indeed online so where can we
5: find you on twitter i'm just at charlotte runty on twitter and instagram and have a website and i'm doing a few various book events this year so i'll be kind of popping up all over the place really hopefully
2: charlotte thanks so much for joining us Oh, thank you
0: Hello, Mickey here, interrupting again, but to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixed Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire And you can find out more about our views, opinions, and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having an natter.
4: You play ball like a girl!
2: Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the block's. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we smash our rackets in disgust at the frickin' patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. And of course this week I'm chatting all things Australian Open, which got underway on Monday. We go into the tournament with a different defending champion for each of last year's four slams, proving once again pretty much anything can happen on the women's side of the draw. And, in my opinion and contrary to some others, admittedly, there's a really nice talent pool developing there. I'm recording this on Monday, and as ever, I cannot time travel. So, I can't tell you what happened on Tuesday, or indeed Wednesday morning, if you're listening to this on Wednesday. But here's my round-up of some of the big names in the tournament. Caroline Wozniacki is the defending champion at this tournament, but she comes into it following a defeat in Auckland by relative unknown Bianca Andreescu. We also have world number one, Simona Hallett, who missed out on the end of last season owing to a back injury and started this year with a round of 16 defeat by Ashley Barty in Sydney. She's also currently without a coach, so I'm not sure the smart money would necessarily be on her. Obviously, as Brits, all eyes are on Jo Conter, but it was a bad year, 2018, wasn't it? She's gone from being in the top 10 ranked women's players to falling out of the top 30, and she goes into the tournament with a neck injury. So, again, I'm not going to hold out too much hope. But look, it's the first Grand Slam of the year, and if she can settle down and find some stability in her coaching staff, we've seen she's got the goods to do well. So, bring on Wimbledon, I say, eh? because, you know, the French Open is on clay, and um, no one likes clay. An outside chance, perhaps, for Petra Kvitova? She had a terrible winter last year, but she has just won the WTP Sydney Open, beating Australian native Ashley Barty last week, so watch this space. My money, for this tournament anyway, is between Angelique Kerber and Serena Williams, the former obviously beating the latter in the Wimbledon final last year. Serena hasn't played competitively since her loss in the US Open finals back in September, but she looks good, unless we forget... The last time she played in the Australian Open, she won whilst pregnant. In her first year back following maternity leave, she made two Grand Slam finals, so, you know, definitely don't write her off. Plus, she has to get her 24th Grand Slam eventually. She actually has to, otherwise I may lose my mind. Obviously, we are chatting women's sport, but this is relevant, so stick with me. We must finally give a massive high five to Andy Murray, three times Grand Slam champion and actual queen of all of our hearts, fuck Jeremy Corbyn, this is all we've got left as Brits, all right? Anyway, last week he announced his imminent retirement from tennis. And Murray, who has been a solid ally of women's sport, calling out sexism, left, right and fricking centre court. You see what I did there? He's made me cry about 20 times in my life, which is more than even Jenny Colgan's dog. About half of those were this morning, I'm recording this on Monday, as he battled back from two sets down to take Roberto Batista Agut. Let's pretend that's how you say it, perhaps without the accent. To a five-set thriller, as we like to say, in the first round of the Australian Open. Now, he did lose, ultimately, but whatever. We'll wait and see if he hangs up his racket for good following that match. Or if he'll be back for Wimbledon, which was his hope. Anyway, whatever the outcome, if that was it this morning, what a way to go. I'll be back next week, probably chatting about tennis some more. Until then, you can tweet me if you have views on any of this, or indeed Jenny Colgan's dog. I am at InspiraGent. Hello there, Jen, interrupting your listening pleasure, just to let you know that we have got some excellent Sunday chops coming up this weekend. First up we have got the second part in our fertility series. Last week we spoke to Aoife McCardle, and next week we'll be talking to Christine Robertson but this week we are talking to fat fertility coach Nicola Salmon about the myths surrounding weight and pregnancy, how Nicola supports women deemed overweight and trying to get pregnant through her campaign Fat Fertility Matters and the insidious nature of the diet culture rat race. Also you can hear me chatting to Journalist and author of a new book, Duped, Double Lives, False Identities and the Con Man I Almost Married. That's Abby Ellen. I had the most fascinating chat with her about her book, her personal experience, why people lie, the impact of lying on others around us. I had the whale of my life chatting to her, basically. So both of those coming up on Sunday. So keep your ears peeled. Or if you don't want to keep your ears peeled because, you know... Maybe it's uncomfortable to peel your ears all the time. Make sure you subscribe, then you'll never have to miss a flipping thing.
0: Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, still going? What Disney did you do this week?
1: (laughs) This week I did 2016's Zootopia which is a Disney alone, no Pixar involvement film starring... I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Jennifer? Jennifer Goodwin. Okay, Jennifer Goodwin, Jason Bateman, Idris Elba, J.K. Simmons, <sighs> Octavia Spencer, Alan Tudyk again. Alan Tudyk appears to be the John Ratzenberger of yeah. Disney films. I couldn't actually even identify who he was playing in this because he does do voices He's really the brilliantly. weasel. Oh, was he? Yeah. Okay. It was on over Christmas and I didn't watch it over Christmas and I saw Twitter, liked it. So I was thinking it was quite good. In fact, it's the one in this last batch that I thought had the chance of being the best one left to watch. Have you guys watched it? I've watched most of it. So I'm going to say yes, I've watched it. Uh, well, see, I'm not sure that that's the case because I think this is a film of two halves, actually. But okay, Mick, I have watched it. Okay. Did you like it, Hannah? I thought the f- about the first 40 minutes, I was deeply ambivalent about it. I think it picked up considerably... In the second half. Yeah. So I don't know at what point you watched it too, Jen. Well, at what point do you think it picks up? I think it picks up when it becomes a a buddy cop film. A buddy cop film, Which happens at about minute 40. Up until that point, I thought it was a bit... I didn't get
2: too far into the buddy cop stuff. and, uh, And maybe that is why I feel the way I feel about this film. Why
1: don't you give us a Mm pressie of what happens? Okay, so it's set in this place called Zootopia, which is a world in which animals populate the planet. And previously, there appears to have been some predators and prey thing going on. Nature. Uh, Yes, but now (laughs) in a somewhat utopian, uh, Zootopian Uh way. Although I noticed in some countries this was called Zootropolis. But anyway, they're all living together really happily now. OK, so there's a rabbit. She's called Judy Hops. She wants to be a policewoman. We first see her when she's a child. It's her ambition. Everyone tells her you can't be one because you're a rabbit and rabbits are small. And, you know, when she gets to be a police officer police rabbit which gets to be a police (laughs) rabbit most of her colleagues are considerably bigger than her anyway her parents who run a farm they send her off to live in the big world and actually that bit where she arrives on that train reminded me of uh, the hunger games when they arrive in the city on that train i just
0: thought why can't we get one of those trains because i am sure i saw so it goes through ice through the saharan desert through all sorts the the rainforest there were probably leaves on
1: the line and it doesn't fucking stop mickey as someone who spent three and a half hours trying to get into London today. Yeah, that train looked brilliant. The rabbit's main enemy appears to be foxes. That's who she's grown up to be suspicious of. Well, that's because one of them scared. Yeah. Mm. So she gets to be a police officer, but she's not really actually, because she almost immediately gets downgraded to be a meter maid.
0: She says, I want to be a police officer. And he goes, no, 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 no.
1: Yeah. <laughs> because her boss, played by Itra Elba, he doesn't really think that this tiny little rabbit is going to make a particularly good cop, despite the fact that when she was doing her training in Officer and a Gentleman style, she seemed to be doing quite well. (laughs) While on Traffic Duty, she encounters a con man who is called... God. I can't remember. what's Nick Wilde. Who is called Nick Wilde, who is played by Jason Bateman. Now, if I'd watched this film when it came out in 2016, the presence of Jason Bateman, I think would have made me really happy. But I've had a change of heart in recent months because of a lot of the stuff that went on around Jeffrey Tambor and Arrested Development. Google it if you don't know what that is. Because it's quite the other thing for me to say me too at this point. Because <laughs> uh, the other thing about Batesman that's interesting in this is apparently when they cast him in it, he said, what sort of voice do you want me to do? And they said, your voice. So it's very, very clearly Jason Bateman because yeah. he's kind of an everyman, isn't he? And he is good though in it. He is good it's in it. He's a good but- character. But yeah, it does. Mm, I still have those I do have new feelings the other thing is there's a very clear message in this film and I feel like it's quite heavy handed mm. in the first 40 minutes that Predators and Prey can live together and all people are brilliant and we can all get on and la 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 now I know we live in a fucked up world and think if you look this film was made in 2016 okay and I think If anything, the rest of 2016 taught us is that it's not children who need to learn that we should all get along and play nicely together. It's Mm grown-ups, actually, children for the most part have this. In Wanda's Octavia Spencer, who's an otter, to say that her husband is missing and Judy gets given this basically as busy work, this job, to try and find him. And she's given in very 48 hour style, she's given 48 hours to do it in. Can
0: I just nip in here to say that he's called Mr. Otterton? Yeah. Mm. I mean, what are the other otters called? (laughs) What are the other rabbits called? They've all, like, it feels like the best names have been taken.
1: Yeah. Mm. She goes to get the only person she really knows who might help her, which is the common Nick. And they set off to investigate this. And at that point, I think the film picks up considerably and it becomes. It actually has a plot that's quite interesting. It, it isn't heavy-handed. It doesn't hit you on the head. And actually, quite importantly, it becomes quite funny. It's very funny. At that point. I thought the first bit, like there's a bit mm. in it where she's lonely and she goes into her bedroom and she turns on the radio <laughs> and it's the two songs that come on are all by myself and everybody hurts. Now, those, those have been used a thousand times mm. in jokes. Whereas the second half, like just every time a sloth is on the screen <laughs> the I sloths. thought it was amazing what a oh, sloth amazing particularly when they, they go to laugh and they do it unbelievably slowly it's, it's adorable. really it's really cute
0: but also when she's scrolling through her iPod and the stuff like the fur fighters
1: just those like yeah. lovely little touches oh and, and when they're selling the, the dodgy DVDs, DVDs and yeah. they're all meowana and yeah. stuff like that So, yeah, there were bits that I really enjoyed. I think towards the end, it went a little bit, everybody be friends and give each other a big hug again, which, again, I thought was quite heavy-handed. So you seem to like it, Mick. I really liked it.
0: And, in fact, I was describing it to my pal yesterday, and he went, oh, I think I want to watch this. So I clearly did a a good job of going, this is really fun. And it is heavy-handed, but it is a Disney film. So I agree with you, but at the same time, I just... Thoroughly enjoyed it and sort of forgot it was a cartoon. It felt like Lethal Weapon or something, or where, where's one where the good guy and the bad guy teams something with forty eight hours. Forty eight hours, yeah, exactly. And it just it has a really lovely, gentle sense of humour. Some absolute killer lines. I loved J K Simmons as the yeah. mayor and the little uh, sheep deputy mayor. It's got quite a nice twist. And I love that um, in the the dodgy lab, there's like two sheep called Jesse and Walter. That made me laugh a lot. It's got some really lovely observational touches in it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I do have a complaint though. Okay. The lead character is clearly a woman and the deputy mayor is a woman. That's pretty much it apart from Mrs. Bunny
1: yeah and mrs, mrs. otterton
0: who are both like either worried or worried yeah and oh and actually shakira is a sexy gazelle that's quite I gonna right.
2: say you have
0: me at shakira she is a sexy yeah. gazelle Her hips don't lie yeah i used to have an ex who fancied gazelles true fact but i watched the credits at the end and pretty much everyone involved script story is a bloke
1: yeah, that's not great, is and it? so
0: I love that they've made a really strong female lead and she I think Judy Hopper is a really good strong female lead. But come on now.
1: Well, they are making another one, so maybe that's really? that's something. Yeah, maybe tutopia. that's something they could. Utopia. Get on that now. <laughs> trademark that now just in case. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I didn't really notice that, which is actually not a, probably a sign that it was I was like I say towards the end I was quite enjoying it. Mhm. I really like when they go into a little rodent town as well, and and actually the little the mafioso Arctic oh, shrew he was brilliant he was as well. Amazing. So yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, I liked it. I thought it was all right. The, the the bit of it I saw was all right. It was a bit underwhelming. You had me at Shakira, obviously. Uh, Which bit the made you bit, cry, you said The, the bit the with made the fox cry. at the beginning. With when Gideon. the fox, yeah, when Gideon like scratched her face, actually made me cry. I've got some issues at the moment, obviously, because like literally everything is making me cry feel like I should answer the question that I really thought Mickey would ask me, but hasn't done. No, I don't fancy a Elba in it.
1: Well, no, he's a buffalo. Bison? Some big thing with horns. Yeah.
0: And also in this film, a a bison
5: (laughs) or
1: a buffalo.
0: Um, He is basically playing loofah, though.
2: Yeah. But with a really weird accent.
0: We've got some new recruits. I'm not going to name him. but I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) What score are you giving it, Hannah?
1: I think I'm going to give it a four
0: for what for um
1: horny idris (laughs) elvis god i don't think i could cope with five of
0: them
4: (laughs) standard issue for all women